Gladys's gold standard sparkling COVID cluster, Morrison trades Australian jobs for Bentleys and blue label scotch, workers are fighting back against exploitation, and the good news is the floating gardens of Bangladesh. Hello and welcome to the week on Wednesday, live from the interesting festival in Wagga Wagga. I'm on stage with the Grand Van Batam, whose red <laughs> outfit matches the red pseudo thrones that we're sitting in today. Yes, I, I obviously didn't see that one coming. But I have to say... I look like a blood cell. Maybe even <laughs> if I stuck my hands out like this, maybe I look like a coronavirus. <laughs> We are here with a live audience, and I want to thank everybody for coming along today. We are going to be taking questions through the show, so um, this is a new format for us. I think it's a fantastic format. We have some interesting topics to talk about. Hopefully, people have some questions. I know, Van, you put out a call on Twitter as well. With this the could link. end very badly, me putting <laughs> out a, a call on Twitter. On Twitter. <laughs> That was a bit Freudian. Um, I'm half expecting it to be, why are you so fat? Why are you so ugly? Why do women speak in public? This is a phenomenon that uh, Ben commonly refers to as another day ending in why in our household. But we'll see what we can manage. And I want to thank uh, Adam, who will be moderating the questions, who may have to deal with some of that. Uh, and also thank you to Scott for having us here at the Interesting Festival in Wagga Wagga. So, Van, of course, the big news today on this Saturday for the week on Wednesday is the COVID outbreak in Sydney. Now, Gladys, the Premier of New South Wales, got up and gave a press conference just shortly before we came on stage. And I have to say the response from the general public appears to be more confusion. Uh, I have to say I've sort of struggled to keep track of the numbers. My understanding is that yesterday from 24 hours before 8 p.m. yesterday, there were about 28 cases, um, but the reports sort of fluctuate. This situation now is that there are four local government areas that are in effect in lockdown, but we're seeing stories of streets that are divided where one side is on lockdown and the other side isn't on lockdown. Quite a lot of confusion about what people can and can't do. Uh, people in Metro Sydney being told not to leave Metro Sydney, but then reports that MPs are leaving Metro Sydney to return home, denial of that. You know, we're from Victoria, obviously. We've sort of lived through four or five of uh, sort of lockdown situations. What, what should the people of Sydney and New South Wales be expecting here? What, what, what do you think we can see coming down the, down the track? Oh, I think, unfortunately, as Victorians, we know too well what you can see coming. And, of course, the, the state government attitude in Victoria has been very different to the state government attitude in New South Wales. And this has been for numerous reasons. There's a lot of information about coronavirus that we know now that we didn't know when the outbreak really took off in March last year. And one of them is that Victoria's climate and it's uh, the way demographics are spread across communities in Victoria made it particularly susceptible to the spread of coronavirus. So particularly in Melbourne's ring suburbs where you have a lot of working class people who work in service capacities who are sort of hypermobile sometimes um, uh, holding down two or three different jobs. One of the ways that the coronavirus got a purchase on the state of Victoria was that you had people who had to keep working during lockdown. Um, and when the sort of process was beginning, when we first started social distancing, we were trying to get our heads around the virus, we're taking it in and from communities, through public transport and through different places of work. And that's got a lot to do with the way that Victoria is designed and the fact that Victoria is cold. Our cultural activities in Victoria are very much centred around doing things indoors and the rest of it. But now it is winter in New South Wales and the sunny days. Like, as a Victorian, I just couldn't believe, like, it was, you know, coming to uh, Wagga to work a couple of months ago, I just couldn't believe that people didn't have masks on and that, you know, the check-in process with QR codes wasn't universal and that it actually looked like life as I remembered it. 
because that's not what it's been like in Victoria. And our state government, because we had that horrible outbreak where we were seeing hundreds of cases a day, that they acted very quickly. I mean, the other thing about Victoria as well is Victoria is a very international city and, you know, Victorians maintain very close contacts with their families who are in India or in Italy or in Greece or in the United Kingdom or in the United States of America and these sort of connected networks. So as Victorians, when the virus really got rolling, we had horror stories from mm. family members and close friends about what was going on in their countries and what we could reasonably expect. So the Victorian government just shut everything down and took a lot of heat for that. Um, and of course, I don't know if you've seen on the internet, the whole dictator Dan mm. and Sky News and the usual suspects were running this, ah, it's just authoritarian socialism south the border and, and, you know, all these conspiracy theories about how Daniel Andrews was in it with Bill Gates and this was a, this was a plandemic, it was a faux-demic and they're doing it to implant us with microchips and they're coming out of the 5G towers and all that kind of stuff that was going on and it's been really, really hard. New South Wales, um, of course, uh, once it had shared the virus with the rest of Australia, courtesy of the Ruby Princess debacle where people with coronavirus weren't even tested when they were disembarking from that ship um, and you know which is how coronavirus really got its really got its start got its mm. big break in Australia New South Wales of course has been making great political capital about oh these you know terrible stylistic labor states and what's going on is just shocking and how dare Daniel Andrews close borders and we don't do that here we're going to keep businesses open, we're much more libertarian. Well, that's a bit of a privilege of the weather and that's a bit of a privilege of having that window, um, which has been totally squandered. So the work that we've done in Victoria has been criticised by New South Wales in this, you know, liberal labour competition about they're bad, we're good, they're prisoners, we're free. And of course, now the virus is out. Ben and I genuinely cannot believe that there's this uptick of cases in New South Wales the, the tracing is not particularly on top of it. And when we got out of the car, when we got here last night, we had our masks on because we're like, well, there's coronavirus in New South mm. Wales now. Mm. We know the people have left Sydney. We know that they don't know where the virus is and there have been super spreader events and, you know, involving National Party MPs who are going back to their electorates. Um, these are massive issues and yet that the sort of reality that we've come from has not quite sunk in yet. And the New South Wales government has been part of that denial. It, it's been it's been just so frustrating to watch. I mean, we've talked about it on this show a number of times over the last 10 months uh, that in Australia we've had this natural advantage of being some months behind the Northern Hemisphere. We can see what has and hasn't worked there. There's lots of lessons to be learned. Vaccination is so important. We've, like, we've gone from we're going to be at the front of the pack to a vaccine stroll out, to a vaccine fail out, to now, today, massive lines at Homebush, people trying to get vaccines that don't, frankly, don't exist. Um, you know, the this sort of denial that's coming out of Gladys around what needs to be done, one of the stats that really floored me today was that of the, sorry, it was 29, 29 infections, of those, only 12 were from people who were already self-isolating. So that means that more than half the people who were recorded as getting coronavirus yesterday have been out and about in a non-mask or a low-mask wearing environment in a low-contact tracing environment. And, you know, yesterday, the Premier of New South Wales didn't want to call a lockdown a lockdown. You know, it's a sparkling home confinement. Yeah, that's right. Apparently, if it's north, apparently if it's outside of Victoria, it's not a lockdown. It's a sparkling home confinement. You know, th this sort of politicking with people's lives. I can't, I can't stress enough how disturbing it is as someone, and I'm sure there's lots of people who listen to the week on Wednesday who who keep it across international news as well, who will have seen the, the, the number of people who have died. They're talking about long COVID repercussions now. This is not something that should be politicked around. And yet here we have state governments playing off against each other, you know, 
this idea that Morrison's not responsible for the vaccines. He's now trying to throw Gladys under a bus, you know, whereas before it was like New South Wales is the gold standard and, and you know, stop playing politics with it. Do what is necessary to keep people safe. You know, you and I are both very fortunate. We, we, we've had both of our vaccine shots and, again, we, we have had both of our vaccine shots, but we're still very conscious of the fact that it is possible and there has been cases recorded in Queensland where people who have had both shots have passed on COVID from one person who was infected to another person who was infected. And yet the Prime Minister of Australia this week was out saying, well, maybe we'll let the restrictions go a bit for people who've had their vaccinations because that'll encourage more people to get vaccinated. It's like, mate... There's no point encouraging us to get vaccinated if you haven't got the vaccines. Put the systems in place. Get this thing right. Don't pretend like it's going to be okay because we saw people die in the state of Victoria when those privatised aged care homes just basically were allowed to let things rip. It was only when the state stepped in and went, hang on a minute, if the Commonwealth's not going to do this, we're going to step in and do this. I don't want to see that in New South Wales. You don't want to see that anywhere. But, you know, the people of New South Wales need to have faith that their government is going to protect them, not that they're going to get some kind of lip service, well, people need to use a bit of common sense. You know, I'm not going to go and visit my parents and use a bit of common sense about whether or not you go and visit yours. It's like, Gladys, it's great that you're not going to go and cough on your parents, but frankly, common sense is not applicable to 100% of people because what's common sense to you may not be common sense to the next person. And it's not... 50% of people doing the wrong thing that causes a problem, it's one or two people, one or two people who may not even know they're doing the wrong thing that causes the problem. And certainly we learnt this in Victoria and sort of watching the virus progress around the world and where has dealt with it well and where hasn't dealt with it well. Like, government modelling of behaviour is absolutely crucial. Like, we knew that the situation in, in Victoria was desperately serious because the government brought down, like, draconian controls on what we could and couldn't do. That was an unambiguous message that this was a lethal and devastating virus. And I've spoken on the podcast before about um, my extended network of friends. I have friends in France and in the United States and in the UK who've had coronavirus. A very close friend of mine had coronavirus for four months and was forced to stop working and was literally physically incapacitated by the long, for like the long COVID, that they call it, the long-tail version. Um, my friend in France has ended up with heart damage from having coronavirus. What it did in the United States, friends of mine who just lost relatives, lost friends, it ripped through communities in the worst way. And recently I found out an old friend of mine in the UK had died because she had had coronavirus. She had it for months. She had recovered from the illness, but she was eating a sandwich and a piece got lodged in her throat. And as she was sort of coughing out this piece of sandwich, her heart gave out because it had been damaged so much by having the infection. Like this is reality in other countries and we don't live in some kind of protected bubble because we're inherently Australian. We have been able to head that off because we had that short window and we had governments across the country, like Tasmania, mm. who just went, that's it, we're shutting all borders, no one can come here, that acted really quickly. And it's you can't be ambiguous about a public health message. And the idea that Morrison at this stage is like, well, you know, maybe it's all right for vaccinated people. And it's like there are literally documented cases in Australia where double double vaccinated people have carried the virus and given it to other people. Like, this is common knowledge now. How many times do we have to keep restudying and re-prosecuting our knowledge of the virus to know that what needs to be done? And yes, lockdown is horrible. And our last experience of lockdown in Victoria, I think, was probably our worst one because we thought, oh, we're all right. Yeah. Like, we've dealt with it. It's under control. And all of a sudden, it was out of control again. You know, and out where we live, there was a wonderful arts festival that friends of ours had been involved in planning called the Dark Mofo Fest, not Dark Mofo, that's in Tasmania, Dark Rainbow, all of these, you know, great artistic acts were coming out. Everybody was so excited. And unem unambiguously, it was like, no, we're locking down again. The virus mm. is back. And the mental health costs of that are horrible. But do you know what's worse? 
dying of a heart attack choking on a piece of sandwich because you had coronavirus for months and months and months. And the idea that Gladys gives a um, press conference saying, well, we're not calling it a lockdown. I'm not calling it a lockdown. I mean, you can call it what you like. And it's like... That's an ambiguous message, love. Like, what are the costs to communities of not having really strong modelling from the government about what behaviour is supposed to look like? Because if you leave it up to people and make it seem unseriousness, you get unserious responses and people get sick and die. Oh, sorry, I was just about to go on. I'm sorry, I'm in a massive rant. But this situation with the lockdown in Sydney... So, when Ben's talking about the two sides of the street, like, he's not... This isn't us being, you know, exaggerating the situation. Newtown, where I used to live in Sydney, is a boundary between two local government areas down the middle of King Street, which is where all the shops and restaurants are. And as a former resident of Newtown, I can tell you that people who live there, they do actually eat at the restaurant across the street from the side that they live on. Like, that's a fairly common thing. Mm. Sorry. No, that's good. I think, you know, this is a new format for us. We have our first ever live questions for the week on Wednesday. Uh, And I'm going to go to the ones that are about this topic first, because there's a question here saying, do you think Scotty from marketing is playing into vaccine hesitancy to avoid increasing the demand for the vaccine and thereby highlighting his government's failures? I, well, I think the reality of this is, to a degree, yes, because we saw some comments about this earlier in the week from um, from I can't remember who it was. It was a it's a general who's in charge of our vaccine rollout, who said that the reason they don't have a big marketing campaign like the really successful one they have in France. If you haven't seen that, check it out. It's a magnificent advertising campaign, um, but. The reason they don't have that is they're concerned that then demand will outstrip supply. So you, if you're Scotty for marketing, if you're that kind of political animal, then there's no question in my mind that there's an element of um, confusion that plays well for him. If people are not certain about what the right answer is, if they're not certain about where this should be, then he's able to kind of surf that a little more. Whereas, frankly, it's pretty clear. Like, it's pretty clear. He made announcement after announcement after announcement, millions and millions of doses of vaccine that we haven't got, haven't arrived. We were going to be first in the queue. First in the queue. All of that rhetoric was about setting up a frame where he could be the hero. Now, of course, it's all fallen down around him. He's trying to find ways of making sure that when the roof collapses, it doesn't crush him. Um, and so I think, yeah, I think there's absolutely an element of that. You know, uh, there's there's another question here on the same sort of topic. Why aren't the governments using data and stories to create a push-pull campaign for vaccination and behaviour? Yeah, well, I don't know. I have, abso- <laughs> I have absolutely... I, I think Ben's analysis is correct. I think that um, we lacked the manufacturing capacity to make vaccines, like the, the erosion of our manufacturing capacity in this country and the erosion of scientific research, all of these things meant that we were, we were denied the opportunity to act really quickly when it came to vaccine production and a science and me- medicine-led response to the crisis. I think that there were issues around obtaining vaccines, these are well documented, Mm. that meant that we didn't get them and of course the EU had its own crisis and we were deprioritised and the rest of it. When Ben and I went for our vaccines the other day, the woman who processed us to get vaccinated was like, you know we're coming last in the world, in the world we're coming last. And of course the statement from the Prime Minister was, oh it's not a race. No, it's not a race with other countries, it's a race against the virus. And of course the Delta variant is now here, we know it's more contagious. We know it's more dangerous. We've seen what it's done to India and I'm reliably informed um, from a combination of of friends with family in India and also from people in the media that it's infinitely worse in India than we're even seeing because so much stuff is not being reported and, you know, they have their their own issues with government representation and Modi and, and the rest of it there. And now we're in a situation where this this rubric of vaccine hesitancy is being used to sort of excuse 
the government for the, the vaccine failure. And of course, vaccine hesitancy, we're used to hearing in terms of the anti-vax movement and that anti-vaxxers put these propaganda, you know, um, mm. introduce out in the community saying that it's, you know, Bill Gates, 5G towers, yada, 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 and don't get vaccinated and it's bad. But, and I mean, I almost died from measles at the age of 17 because an anti-vax doctor advised my mother when I was a kid that I wouldn't need a, man, a measles vaccine. And my mother, working class woman, believed the doctor. I wasn't vaccinated and I was left physically scarred. Like I've still got damage um, from that experience. And so, you know, I, I, I take this issue particularly uh, seriously. But using that language of vaccine hesitancy as if Australians are reluctant to be vaccinated or as if the anti-vax sort of message has gotten through, and we know that's not true. It's a complete failure of availability and the confusion around mm. who qualifies and who didn't. And, you well, know, everybody's well, got a story around that and it's got to do with a lack of cohesion and supply. And it doesn't seem like my Morrison's really going to address this in any um, <laughs> in any kind of definitive way. Hopefully, what we'll start to see in New South Wales is um, business workers, community demanding a bit more clarity, demanding a bit more certainty about what they should and shouldn't be doing. Um, just leaving it up to um, this kind of nebulous. Oh, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. Is obviously not going to work. I want to. I want to move on a little bit because we've touched now a little bit on um, Morrison's um, performance, and I think one of the things that's come up in the last week or so is, of course, this UK-Australia free trade agreement, where Morrison went to the UK notionally to represent us uh, as, obser as an observer at the G7. Not sure we really got any value out of that. Um, he then went on a bit of a pub crawl doing a live action Ancestry.com, trying to figure out where he's from. Um, and. Uh, then signed this free trade agreement. I just find it amazing he went to the Jamaica Inn in Cornwall. Like, so Jamaica Inn is the name of a book by Daphne du Maurier, so it's got a bit of brand recognition. And Ben and I popped in there. Um, yeah, we've been there, yeah. Yeah, right. and it's it's a tourist trap. It's not it's not really where you expect the Prime Minister to go. Uh, like, I'm not saying Prime Ministers need to be fancy. Obviously, I prefer the Uruguay model where the President, you know, drives a 30-year-old car and lives yeah, a humble yeah. life. But the Jamaica... Like, it's kind of... It's not really? You went there? Like, the full jewels of Europe before you, and you're like, you know, I want to get a celebratory mug. Yeah, and so he's... <laughs> I just remember we had bangers and mash. We did. Know, like the, the awful, gaudy bangers and mash that cost three times what it cost at the pub up the road. Um, but anyway, so he's signed this free trade agreement. Some analysis out of um, uh, on the BBC suggests that it, it will add 0.02% to British GDP over 15 years, which is effectively a rounding error. Um, <laughs> I haven't seen any analysis of any of the economic benefits for Australia because, of course, in Australia, the Liberal Party treat free trade agreements like some kind of um, ticker box. Yes, we've signed another one. Isn't it great? Don't release the details because people might actually see we've given away, you know, the right for Australians to have jobs. Uh, we've given away the right for state governments to legislate health and safety issues, uh, all these sorts of things. And from what I can see, they seem to be trying to say that this will mean Australians will be able to buy cheaper Bentleys and Land Rovers and the English will get cheaper Tim Tams. It doesn't actually have much substance to it. But when you get into the detail, and, and the, British, the British are keen, obviously, to promote free trade agreements. You know, Boris Johnson has failed with Brexit. He's failed to get the American free trade agreement. He's failed to get an EU one. He's desperate to get some wins on the board. And this kind of smacks of Morrison doing a favour for a mate. And what he, Johnson's government is promoting is that now Brits will be able to come to Australia and essentially be considered in the same kind of queue, the same line, however you want to put it, uh, as Australians. 
So for jobs, for jobs, so that there's no um, there's no more kind of um, Australian worker first when it comes to British. Um, British citizens, and also oh, the British are praising this. Yeah, yeah so the, the British, British have put out the British government have put out a document about how great the British Australia Free Trade Agreement is, and it is it's amazing. I will tweet it afterwards um, if you want to look at it because it's like dot points about why this is so great, and it literally says this will be so great for international British workers because Australia will no longer be allowed to prioritise the employment of Australians. Isn't that great? And In, I'm like, is that great? In is that great? Is that great in the media where we have shrinking newsrooms and half of the people on Twitter seem to have accounts saying formerly employed at publication, broadcaster, etc. here? Is that good for researchers who are graduating from universities being completely denuded of funding, trying to compete against um, British, like properly qualified, properly resourced British graduates? Like where is where is the benefit to us in this? Well, this is the thing, right? So I, uh, I have a cousin who's a doctor from the UK who came to Australia because he wanted to come and work here uh, and they wanted a Burns specialist. So he's gone from a very junior doctor position in the UK to a very senior doctor position. He's younger than me, like he's in his early 30s. And his wife is a nurse. Now, initially, it was difficult for her to get employment because in Australia, we actually need, we, we have enough nursing graduates. Um, in the end, she's been employed by the same hospital that he's been employed by. Now, this will put pressure in the health sector as well, where, you know, and, and health jobs, things like nursing, things like caring roles in the health sector are one of those, are those professions that help people make transitions from working class to middle class. These are, these are key types of sectors for Australia to be training people. But of course, you know, this is what gets to me, right? Like I get, uh, I get very frustrated with all of this stuff because these free trade agreements, and we've seen it before, we saw it with CHAFTA, we, we've seen it with RCEP, we, you know, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, all these sorts of things are, are supposed to make life better, easier, cheaper, all the rest of it. Inevitably what it leads to is a weakening of labour standards, either at the top end or the bottom end that essentially hollows out the middle. It leads to very little actual benefit for the vast majority of Australian people. It, they're negotiated by corporate lawyers. They're negotiated in secret. There is no community involvement. There is no union involvement. There is no NGO involvement. Often the details are not even released to the parliamentarians who are expected to vote on enacting legislation. They don't vote on the agreements. Unless they're parliamentarians who have jobs lined up with the people who are doing the lobbying. Hi, Andrew Robb. Exactly. I hope you're enjoying your post-trade minister employment with a Chinese government-backed multinational? So these, these are just outrageously exploitative situations that don't actually help the Australian public. And then you see all this tinkering that has to go around the edges to facilitate these things. Because, of course, it has led to a hollowing out of so many of our universities, so many of our TAFEs. There are now shortages of labour in all sorts of sectors. And instead of going, oh, well... We, we believe in the market, so we're gonna, if there's a shortage of labour, then we'll let the wages increase, and you know that's what we believe. No, 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 no. They'll put the ideology aside for the purpose of profit. The propaganda about the ideology, as opposed to the ideology itself. It's exactly, and go well. Now we'll have well. We can't exploit the British backpackers anymore because we've just done this free trade agreement. Because Boris didn't like that. He was getting all these complaints from people coming back, going, "Oh, I got a bit sexually harassed over there. Could you do something about that?" No, we'll start a new agreement. We'll have an ASEAN uh, visa. That, well, maybe they're a bit more exploitable. So instead of dealing with the issue, instead of going, we have a domestic policy problem around labour, around the allocation of work, around employment and around wages, we use these sort of free trade agreements as a mechanism to open up all these different side deals, these different side deals that facilitate the undermining of Australian labour standards, Australian living standards. And frankly, this one is is like probably the most pathetic that I've seen in the last 10 years because it doesn't really seem to be about anything other than allowing a professional class of people from the UK to come and work here making sure that backpackers don't go back and complain to their conservative 
red-faced Tory MPs and complain to Bojo and giving him a bit of a free kick because he's struggling to deal with the fact that he can't actually deliver Brexit in the way that he promised. And Morrison, being a sort of ideological brother-in-arms with this fatuous individual has decided to go, oh, that's all right, mate, while I'm here, I'll tick this thing off and we'll, uh, we'll all be good. Oh, it's amazing. So in the dot points, um, the, the great benefit to Australians that the British are claiming is that we will, we will have reduced prices on British cars. And let's talk about British cars. Rolls-Royce, Bentley, Jaguar, Land Rover, um, and on Scottish whiskey, and on ceramics. And I'm just like, if you can afford any of those imports now, the discount is really quite irrelevant to you. Like, no one's buying a Rolls Royce because it's a bargain love. Like, that's not like, well, you know, I was going to get a Mitsubishi, but I thought, you know, now that they've whacked the 2.5% tax off the... Like, it's absolute madness. Just imagine how much uh, how much whiskey and British ceramics you can fit in the back of a Land Rover, though. I mean, uh, I mean yeah, true. You know. I mean, for that particular household, you know, and I'm sure there's one because there's always one. I'm just like, you have got... Got, like, you know, I really fancy some Port Marion ceramics, but, you know, like, the extra... I mean, it, it is total madness. But my other favourite bit is they're like, and we'll be seeing Vegemite and Tim Tams on British supermarket shelves. I'm like, guys, your problem is vegetables. You've been importing <laughs> them from Holland. You are a country that can barely grow English spinach, and it's called English spinach. I think you have bigger problems than Tim Tams. But having, because I lived in the UK for 10 years, and it's like they don't need Vegemite and Tim Tams. They have Marmite and Penguin bars, which are the same thing. And in a country that's been doing the sort of branded identity thing for, what, 3,000 years? Maybe new entries to the market are not really what they're dying for. Like, oh, well, I've been a Marmite eater all my life, but now they've taken the import tax off Vegemite. I'm going to make a switch. Have you met British people? Like... <laughs> so, Ben, we've got another question. Uh, they still have a queen. I mean, we technically <laughs> still have a queen, but come on. We have, a, we have a question on this topic. What would a fair trade agreement with the UK or any other country look like because no free trade agreement is truly free every country has conditions and it's a great question right this is your time to shine i i'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna take this one because i've actually met with the eu trade delegation because australia is trying to get a trade agreement with the eu and the eu has like every other country on earth apart from great britain well done <laughs> boris well done because the, the EU has um, some of the elements of what you would call a, a fair trade agreement, right? It's transparent. It's not negotiated by corporate lawyers. It's negotiated by sovereign states. It's a weird concept. It involves stakeholders, so NGOs, unions, business groups, peak bodies. Um, there, there are conditions around labour that have to be met. Uh, there are conditions around safety that have to be met. There has to be supply chain tracing as well. So you can't just kind of um, rebadge or relabel something that's actually been made in an exploited way. Um, and of course, it's taking the Australian government a long time to try and negotiate this agreement because the Australian government doesn't want it to be transparent. Um, of course, a fair trade agreement also wouldn't include things like um, investor-state dispute resolution um, processes, which were originally set up, quite frankly, to allow companies to reclaim their losses in the event that a bunch of communists take over and nationalise their company. So the most famous example of this in Australia uh, is with uh, plain cigarette packaging and the way that the um, the Rudd-Gillard-Rudd government and Nicola Roxon was the health minister at the time pushed for, uh, you know, our sovereign right to label, to plain label cigarettes in order to discourage smoking. And of course this became an ISDS issue. Because Australia had a free trade agreement with Hong Kong, Philip Morris was, a regist was registered in Hong Kong and they used this clause to sue the Australian government for a decade to try and claim, firstly, to stop plain packaging of cigarettes and then to claim massive amounts of compensation. Now, in that particular case, the Australian government won because it was determined that 
Philip Morris selling cigarettes in Australia has nothing to do with Hong Kong, quite frankly, but we only won on a technicality, right? Now, these clauses are inserted into free trade agreements all the time. The EU says, well, we shouldn't have this. This is not fair. If the people elect a government on the basis of they're going to raise the minimum wage or they're going to have these kind of planned packaging laws or they're going to have occupational health and safety that gets rid of, say, asbestos, which in Eastern Europe is still an issue, um, then people should be allowed to do that. It's, it's remarkable how quickly an elected government in Australia is prepared to give away the sovereignty of the Australian people to corporate lawyers in order to tick off a free trade agreement. And what that actually means for communities can be really devastating. So, I mean, another really good recent example in Australia is, of course, the Chinese-Australian Free Trade Agreement, which was hailed as, you know, this you know, this is going to be so great. And there's a provision in that agreement that if, um, if a Chinese multinational is invested in any kind of project in Australia that is worth in total $150 million, they can import an entirely... Chinese workforce. Mm. Now, there's a big difference between a workforce that comes from Australia where unions are legal and not controlled by an unelected authoritarian government and a workforce that is imported from a country where you know, they're suppressing democracy in Hong Kong, unions are essentially a political fiction and campaigns for raising labour standards like, are non-existent. I mean, these are massive issues that undercut the capacity of an, of an organised Australian workforce for demanding better wages, better conditions and the kind of living standards that we grew accustomed to in, in the days before these, these rights and these expectations were sold out in secret through negotiation with corporate lobbyists. I know. So at this point, it's probably worth mentioning that uh, the week on Wednesday is proudly sponsored by Australian unions. Yes, we are sponsored by Australian <laughs> unions, which and was... Which was based on the fact that we praise unions in the union movement all the time uh, and it was fairly easy to do. I can't really see myself selling Tim Tams from a corporate perspective. Despite penguin the fact bars, I'm though. not averse to a Tim Tam, but I couldn't bring myself to recommend it. Well, now we could sell penguin bars, right? Isn't yeah, that? The, yeah, the penguin stuff. bars. Yeah. I mean, the penguin bar invasion of Australia is going to be remarkable. Yeah. I mean, I live there, right? Like, and I, I love British culture and things they do really well. Museums. They're great in museums. Heritage That's protection, they run a beautiful donkey sanctuary. These are all great British things. English Premier League, fantastic. But the, the idea of importing food from Great Britain, I, while I was there, and like I, I, discussed, I had this theory that British food was the way it was to repel the French, like the way to stop a French invasion was like, no, sir, you can't even get an omelette here. And the idea that, you know, the great market of Australia that exists for British cuisine is confounding to me. It is pretty confounding. So I, I think I think I want to move on here because we, we touched a little bit there on, on unions and labour rights. And, of course, there's been a number of developments in that space over the last week. Um, people who are familiar with uh, the week on Wednesday will know that we talked about the General Mills strike uh, that was happening uh, in New South Wales. So General Mills is a company that makes uh, old El Peso products in Australia and Latina Fresh. Old El Peso, is that how you say that? Well, yeah, I mean, old I don't Paso, know. Right? Old El Paso. Old El Paso, Peso. Okay. Yeah. Um, but I, as you know, have consumed the products in the past and have loyally observed the boycott. We have loyally observed the boycott. And can I just say, I think, not just us observing it, but others observing it, the workers themselves actually going on strike. And, you know, we've discussed this before, right? But people don't want to go on strike. There's, no, there's very few people in the world who ever go, I'm really looking forward to going on strike. It means you don't have income, you've got all the financial stress, you, you're attending a picket line, you're trying to have conversations with the boss about your conditions at the same time. You're generally terrified you're going to lose your job or yeah. in Australia be fined thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars in, in, as an individual for taking unprotected industrial action. And these workers stood strong, many of them casual, many of them casual, stood strong for weeks and they've won. Right, they've won. They've won uh, almost nine percent increase in pay over the next three years. A fifteen hundred dollar um, uh, sign-on bonus, which is essentially in the Australian context what what we do instead of back pay, um, and protection for those casuals who went on strike, so that they won't be penalised. Um, and this is this is part now, I think, of 
where the, the, the economic situation is, not just in Australia, but we're seeing in other places around the world now too, right? Like the pandemic has highlighted that there are, in fact, there is in fact a great need to have working people working in factories, working in food manufacturing, working in retail, working in caring industries. Uh, we saw this week the Secure Work Inquiry hand down a report. This is a Senate report that uh, Senator Tony Sheldon chaired, um, basically saying, you know, we need to regulate the gig economy. We can't just have this sort of free-for-all where you massive multinational tech platforms are pretending that somehow or another, um, you know, a, an international student or um, a disability care worker have the same bargaining power as Uber, right? Uber's going around saying they're the second largest employer in Australia, but at the same time, they don't employ anybody. You know, this inquiry said, we've got to regulate this. We've got to make determinations here. We've got to give people actual rights because they have rights. They're actual workers. So, you know, the General Mills example, I think, is a really great example where you've got full-time, part-time, casual, labour hire workers standing together, building community support, influencing the outcome, getting the win. Um, and what we need to see now is a bit more of that. There was a question that came through, Van, and I, I want to get your view on this, because um, obviously the General Mills example is about a collective bargaining agreement, right? Um, and there's a question from the audience here in Wagga saying, if you're not part of a collective bargaining agreement, what are the benefits of being in a union? Oh, there are so many. Um, and there are, there are so many across different levels. Like one, we know that if you are a member of a union, statistically, you will be paid more. Uh, statistically, you will enjoy more job security. You will be more empowered within negotiations with your employer. Uh, you are less likely to suffer serious debilitation if you are mm. injured, and I mean economic debilitation. Um, and also, uh, studies suggest you will be happier with your life. And, I mean, these benefits come from the fact that when I'm explaining why I'm a member of a union, because, like, like, I'm very happy in my career. Like, my career, I've got to say, um, as a person who's worked in five different industries and all kinds of different capacities and worked in the UK, in the minimum wage environment there, which was a wonderful experience of poverty, um, that... I'm doing well now, but I am a member of a union because the the happiness of my entire industry depends on a collective support of the most vulnerable. That morale is actually really important. So if you are doing well, like spread the joy and, and spread the contribution and be part of a, a collective commitment to ensuring that if your circumstances changed, you would not be the person who suffered like from uh, from a disparity of experience in the workplace because other people didn't remember what we all owe to one another. I mean, and not being part of a collective agreement and not relying on those processes makes doesn't make you empowered. It makes you very exploitable. Mm. And I, I mean, I talk about this all the time, that the most terrifying phone call I ever get from anyone involves me, because people know that, you know, I'm a huge advocate for unions, and I will get friends calling me, and if I have to say the words, are you a member of the union, I am terrified about what's happened. And I was, I think I mentioned this on the program last week, I had a friend who was employed in a, a like, retail business, and had a stockroom accident and ended up with a brain injury, and it literally the most vulnerable vulnerable time of his life. He wasn't a union member. He didn't have a lawyer. He didn't have access to an industrial officer. He didn't know who to contact to get people to help him. And yet was suddenly afflicted with this massive medical problem, was unable to work, the bosses took no responsibility, tried to blame him for their own poor occupational health and safety, and it was I mean, totally destroyed his life. And the thing is, you know, I, when you explain to people, like, it's all of the, the benefits of being part of a community, but it's also the fact that there is someone who has your back if the unthinkable happens. Like, nobody wants to think they're going to get injured at work or that they're going to get fired or they're going to get outsourced mm. or the, the business they work for is being offshored. But the experience of the economy over the past 40 years is that could happen to anyone. Like, there was a time in this country where a job at a university was seen as a 
job for life. And this was the ivory tower and those privileged gowned academics, you know, running around who didn't understand the rest of us because of the security of their jobs. Well, the university sector now has the largest number of casual employees of any industry in the country. And it is, and we know in the wake of coronavirus, what we've seen happen to universities, and of course it's happened at CSU, was that there's been this drive to, to drive out the older workforce who are still on permanent contracts to casualise or to fire casuals if they're trying to shrink departments, that the employment conditions in that industry have become incredibly unstable. And it literally, and in the media it's the same thing. Like journalism, you always used to think you could go from one publication to another to a TV station to a radio station because you had these valuable skills. Well, digital interruption changed everything as it did in the recording industry, as it has in so many other parts of the economy, that the old jobs for life are disappearing and there's a corporate drive to fire staff, to reduce mm. workforces, to strip conditions. You know, this relentless drive to increase profits, you know, the human cost of that doesn't come into it. You know, the corporate accountants are not sitting there going, how's this going to make people feel? No. Like, that's not... You don't quantify that on a profit and loss. And... And can I just say, at the other end of the spectrum, if you're if you're in an um, if you're in a firm where people are not covered by a collective agreement, you know it can be it can be daunting to think you're going to be the first one in the union. But if you're the first one in the union, you're probably not going to be the last one in the union, right? The the unionised workplaces become unionised because people join. Um, you get collective agreements because people join the union. Uh, and that's not to say, you know, one person's going to join and the next day everyone's going to be in. But it is it is about that community. You know, it is about that community, that support. Um, and yes, all the back end, all the back end uh, benefits are there for you immediately as a member. Um, but in terms of then, how does that translate into those higher wages? How do you build that sense of community? That's on all of us. Like, that's on you and me. It's yeah. on every member of every and union. It's, and it's recruit by example. Yeah. But the thing is, if you are the first person in your workplace to join the union, you're the person who has the lawyer. You're the person yeah. who has someone who can negotiate your working conditions for you. And for someone like me, like I like I said, I've worked in five industries and my work has been really unstable. And unfortunately, because I work in journalism, the arts, and, you know, whatever is sometimes education, it, it can be really up and really up and down and there are good seasons and bad seasons and that's a huge section of the economy now. Mm. Australia has one of the largest pools of casualised workforce participation in the world and we've used this statistic before. In Germany, when 20% um, of the workforce were identified as being casualised, it was a national economic crisis and they were having tripartite meetings between the government, business and the union movement to work out what they could do about the scope of casualisation. Well, in Australia, it's 40%. Like, it's... The, the, the old permanent jobs are rapidly becoming a thing of the past, and this gig economy cancer that's moving... which is, you know, moving through mm. everything from aged care to early childhood education to, you know, like, home repairs to uh, transport services, you know, the this NDIS. constant sort of platform gobbling, which is also gobbling labour standards... But if you are the first, yeah, you won't be the last. But the, the protections of that association kick in from the beginning. You do not want to be the person with the brain injury in the stockroom going, what do I do now? Who do I go to? I'll call Van and she'll say, are you a member of the union? So, I mean, one of the, one of the sort of good news stories around this, of course, is that um, you, you flagged this up to me today, that in Marseille, a group of workers has taken over a McDonald's location, um, kicked out the management, set up a food bank, and, and because they've taken that action and they've built community support and they've built a connection to the community, they've now also been essentially endorsed and supported by the local government. There, this right? is one of the best stories ever. So on the week on Wednesday, I always do a good news story, and we try to have a good news industrial story and a good news environment story, and this one is just good news across the board. So um, Marseille in France has really serious problems with economic inequality, and in the 14th district of Marseille, 40% um, of people live in poverty. 40. 40% of people. Uh, a McDonald's was built there in the 1990s and of course McDonald's and France have an interesting relationship but a McDonald's was built there and was sort of hailed at the time as a potential employer because 
so many kids who grow up in that particular community drop out of school and there was a guy who got a job there when he was 16 and that was his income. So the idea that a single McDonald's is a major employer in your area is kind of terrifying on many levels. Um, two years ago, the staff at that McDonald's decided they would unionise and what do you know... Um, all of a sudden that McDonald's was considered not to be a, a going concern. So there was a move to... The, so the mm. McDonald's was slated for closure and it was just a massive coincidence that the workforce were unionising at the time. This guy who had gone in there as a 16-year-old who's now in his 30s went, yeah, no way. And when I say... When Ben says they occupied the McDonald's, they totally took it over. They repainted it. They changed the sign around. So it's now called La Prairie M after M, after McDonald's, and they've turned it into a food bank. So they've been soliciting donations from the community and, you know, beyond the community that they're from in order to share food. And, of course, when the pandemic ripped through France, this place became absolutely essential because the people who lived in the 14th district had lost jobs mm. and been and had all these problems anyway. And they've got a progressive local government who have said, this is exactly what people should be doing. Like, if you're being exploited, like, take over, show us what you need... You set the democratic agenda for this community. You have identified that there's a problem with food supply. You have identified the unemployment problem. We will support you and we will turn this... We, will, we are going to buy these premises and turn this into an organisation and we encourage everybody else to do this kind of stuff. And it's amazing. It is amazing. Look, there's a couple of questions from the audience that I think we should touch on and then we're going to go to the good news story because we're going to run out of time. There's so many great questions. We're not going to get to all of them. There's uh, one here around um, on this sort of topic. Women are far more likely to work part-time and casually. How does the gig economy exacerbate existing inequality? Do you yeah, wanna... totally. It totally does. I mean, it absolutely does. The three lowest paid industries in Australia um, across the board are retail, hospitality and the arts, and all of these industries are massively oversubscribed by women. Obviously, given the fact... And, and the reason why Australia is quite unusual um, in the OECD, we have one of the most gender-segregated workforces mm. in the world. And unfortunately, the pattern in Australia is that the more women who join your workforce the pay goes down and the more men who join your workforce, the pay goes up. So when women, um, when men started to displace women in IT, because IT was always traditionally a uh, female-dominated industry, that's when all of a sudden IT became this like really crucial service in the economy and the wages went up. Um, university teaching, uh, when women began to get purchased in that particular environment, is, is when everything started to get casualised and wages were driven down. The issue with the gig economy and where the gig economy operates in these highly insecure situations. The other issue that we have in Australia is massively disproportional care burden, where women overwhelmingly have the majority of responsibilities for raising children in the home, doing housework uh, for their existing households, and also um, for informal structures of aged care. So one of the reasons why women oversubscribe the lowest paid industries is because they're casualised and therefore more flexible, and they're trying to build an income source around caring commitments. Given the fact that those casualised parts of the economy is where the platform just parasites have attached themselves, obviously they sell an empowerment model to mm. workers who require flexibility, who want to be able to choose shifts. But what we know from the experience all over the world and from the platforms here is that the platforms come to dominate your destiny. And the implications of that for women and care relationships, their economic empowerment are really dire. And maybe you could talk about some of your experiences in the platform world of aged care. Well, with the in the NDIS, I think you, you're starting to see the real dominance of of platforms, and and most of the the vast majority of the platforms use that contracting model. So, you know, this sort of notion that it's empowering to have an ABN and you you run your own business, but you will work when we say you will do the work in the way that we say you will only charge within this framework. Um, these are not business relationships. These are effectively employer and employee relationships. Um, and you do see people end up trying to supplement income. So whether they're 
particularly in the caring industry, you'll see people working casually or part-time with your more traditional provider and then trying to supplement income with a platform. And then, as you say, what happens is the platform starts to dominate their existence. You know, you can't... um, you can't really pick and choose because if you decide not to do some things, eventually you get pushed down the algorithm, you get pushed off the front page, you don't get the shifts at all. Um, and people, you know, people are wise to this and, and they need the money. So it's quite a, it is quite parasitic in a lot of these relationships. It's quite, um, it is skewed, um, and does have a real gender bias against women. There's no question about that. Uh, and frankly, um, it's a real problem. It's a real problem. That's why it's good to see that Senate report. You know, it's good to see what Victoria's doing. There's a real, uh, there's a real ideological conflict going on in this space that people should be conscious of. You know, the New South Wales Liberal government has basically said that it's the responsibility of food delivery drive, food delivery riders, not to die on New South Wales roads. You know, that's your responsibility. You, you have, you're the ABN holder. Just make sure you don't die on our road. In Victoria, Labor government is saying we're going to regulate this because it is a problem. Um, so it's a real, it's a real split. I, I, I want to move on because we've got. Yeah. I just want to remind everybody that the Greens are in support of the platforms as well. There's a very famous speech by Nick McKim where he talks about how he'd like to see the Uber model extended to labour hire and childcare, and that's when I parted company with that particular movement and went, really? This yeah. is a this is a question that's right up your alley, Van, given your book coming out in November of this year. Would you consider QAnon an example of far-right extremism? Yes. Well, let me finish because there's more. Usually extremism involves violence. In Oz, is this violence covert? Far-right extremism, question mark. Well, my general rule of life is... Uh, <laughs> Your safety is about your political safety is about how proximate you are to far right extremism. And as an individual or a community, the more that far right extremism is in your life, the more susceptible to incredible danger you are in, either uh, being a victim of it or perpetrating it. And the reality is this: so, for those of you who don't know, I've been writing a book about um, QAnon and internet conspiracy cults uh, for the past 12 months. Um, I have been under underground, uh, undercover in the community of uh, extremists in Australia and internationally, sort of studying them and getting to know them. And it is the most terrifying stuff I could possibly. My book obviously documents the history of these movements, where their influences come from, why they exist, why people get recruited by them, and the profound damage they do to relationships and families and communities. So essentially, the, the issue with things like QAnon is they become what sociologists call a thought control environment. And a thought control environment is where you develop such mistrust of external sources of information that you are guided towards a a channel of information that reconditions your reality, essentially. So some of the QAnon people who I've met in my underground adventures absolutely believe that Hillary Clinton eats children. Um, They believe, uh, alternatively, there are different factions, but they believe that um, dangerous, evil alien lizards live amongst us pretending to be people and that these alien lizards, you know, are the Rothschild family and control the Queen and, you know, these these are really dangerous beliefs because they're not based in reality. Like, I mean, it's scientific fact that dangerous alien lizard people do not live amongst us. There, There is no government on Earth. There are some pretty, like, horrible authoritarian governments on Earth, but the kind of logistics involved in it hiding hundreds of thousands of children um, who you're going to torture under major metropolitan cities with no one finding out, like, no government is capable of doing that. You know, in Australia, we can bet there was a rumour that there were 300,000 children children in, in torture dungeons um, under the city of Melbourne. This was quite big in QAnon circles. And I'm like, we can barely manage hotel quarantine. Like, who is feeding those children? Like, where? how is that possibly a thing? But if you are psychologically vulnerable, and my book goes into the psychology of why people get involved in conspiracy cults, if you are psychologically vulnerable, 
people and being overwhelmed by bad or chaotic information, where, where a lot of human minds go to is what they call a paranoid schizoid position, where you're so overwhelmed that you reduce the world to good and evil, dark and light, you know, alien lizard people and patriots, and you make these really binary distinctions, my side, your side, us, them, because mm. it simplifies the world. If somebody's in that position and a conspiracy cult get, you know, propaganda or a community gets purchase on them and feeds that distress with this propaganda which is based in total nonsense, um, it becomes extremely dangerous. And in the United States, the reason why they identified QAnon as a domestic terrorist threat was that if you live in an information environment that tells you daily hourly, you know, through message by message by message, that leaders of political parties are killing and eating children. And I'm not making this up. Like, mm. this is the, the mythos. Like, you start to, as people have in America, you know, take justice into your own hands. Like, you have bought into this mythology that tells you that there is a dungeon under a Washington pizza restaurant or that Mike Pence is a traitor and your behaviour is motivated by a complete belief and a reinforced belief that those things are real and you act out a reality that you think is based on that information and you know if I genuinely thought there was somebody in my community who was killing and eating children and nobody was doing anything about it like I'd probably be inspired to vigilantism as well I think any of us would but the rest of us are consuming um, mainstream media we trust institutions we know that mistakes get made mm. we have a realistic appreciation of consequences and logistics and all those things but somebody in distress doesn't have that and if they fall into that kind of community they become unbelievably dangerous. And the thing is too, and this is what my book talks about, bad faith political actors, and I'll just name them, they are fascists and neo-Nazis, and the kind of people who haven't really been getting a lot of good press since that whole, you know, Holocaust and World War experience, they are using these communities of people who are in distress as a gateway channel to recruitment to fascist and neo-Nazi ideologies. So you may start off just thinking that, you know, the government are up to something and something weird is going on and have you heard this rumour and, like, all the crazy rumours about Daniel Andrews, who has a broken vertebrae and has been, like, in a form of traction mm. for the past few months. He's not involved in a mass abduction of children. That is not a thing that is happening. Um, though there are people on the internet who will tell you to your face that absolutely that is a thing that is happening. Um, the, the thing is that the, the far right, the organised far right are recruiting from that pool of people and directing them towards things like hating Jews and, mm. you know, anti-black racism and really explicit forms of hate and bigotry and so, that is what is happening. So, so in some ways, you know, if we can identify extremism and we can address the causes and we can deal with it before it becomes these outbursts of violence because we have seen them in the US these outbursts of violence oh crazy in other parts of the world as well murders and, and, and terrorist incidents and so we don't want to see that replicated here so I think I think the answer to that question is yes I'm going to quickly address one more question because I think it's quite a good question um, what do you think about Tony Abbott's role as UK trade advisor is he a traitor yes if you think he's Australian no if you think he's British would be my answer to that um, so take your own conclusion there and I want to I want to finish on because we've had a really good discussion today it's been a really fantastic um, experience I hope everybody in the audience has enjoyed it as well we like to finish on a good news story because some of the topics we've discussed have been pretty um, pretty heavy pretty heavy but Van there are some floating gardens in Bangladesh that are giving hope to the world that perhaps we'll still be able to eat if half of us get washed away by climate change. Well, yeah. So um, Bangladesh, notorious for being quite flood prone. It and is below sea level, most of it. All kinds of post-colonial economic problems. Um, there's a practice that has evolved over centuries in Bangladesh to deal with the proneness to flooding, which is a form of uh, water-based agriculture where plants like the water hyacinth are used to create... So they they nurture these, you know, naturally occurring plants um, and sort of cultivate them to form rafts, mm -hmm. which are about three feet deep. And these float because they're floating plants. But the rafts that they're created from this organic material are where uh, water-based Bangladeshi farmers can plant crops. 
So they harvest various forms of agriculture from these floating rafts of water hyacinths that they knit together. Isn't that fantastic? It's kind of amazing. And um, various communities survive because the rafts attract fish. Mm-hmm. So it becomes like a... It's a little ecosystem. Yeah, it's a, not only a little ecosystem, but um, an ecological economy as well, mm. that you, uh, you know, nurture these plants, these plants support your agriculture, the agriculture and plants attract the fish and you can... Um, feed, yeah, you can survive. Well, obviously the issue with climate change and the language used is that all of these countries who are not responsible for climate change are the ones who are going to bear the brunt of flooding and massive you know, mm. geographical and agricultural disturbance. And it's the University of Ohio that's been looking at, well, what do we do if everything floods? And they're using the sort of floating agriculture and the floating gardens of Bangladesh as a way of looking at how communities can be sustainable if the floods come and Mm -hmm. communities can feed themselves, um, but also as like a broader uh, practice of sustainability and looking at how we can look at agriculture in a different and um, more sort of lateral and holistic way because of the kind of pressures that a changing climate are going to deliver us. So it's, it's kind of amazing what they're doing and they're looking at how that can be trialled and different models of sort of water-based agriculture can work out. So we're going to keep up the struggle against climate change, but in the event that it does change a little bit, we won't all starve to death, hopefully, thanks to actually some of the thanks people who the will be most impacted. Thanks to the water hyacinths of Bangladesh coming in for that last-minute agricultural save. Fantastic news. Thank you so much. I think that is really good news to end the show on. I want to thank... Everybody who's listened to today's episode, which we will get online as soon as possible, I want to thank everybody here in Wagga Wagga who has made us feel so welcome, who has asked us questions, who has engaged with this show in a really positive way. Give yourselves a round of applause because I think you've done such a great job. And the... And this applause sound will help the people at home realise that we haven't been lying about the whole thing, right? So that's good too. Yeah, that we are not in the shed. Although I do sort of miss the sound of the iron roof creaking. I've got to say it's sort of odd to be talking about politics without trying to wrangle the dog and deal with the roof. I know. Doesn't this just feel so fancy and special? It really does feel fancy (laughs) and I'm a bit in love with these chairs, even if they do make me look like a red blob with black lights. (laughs) So thanks so much for listening to The Week on Wednesday. Don't forget to share this episode. Don't forget to talk about these issues. Do send us your questions. Do send us your topics. We always love to hear from people who have enjoyed the show or even if you haven't enjoyed the show, tell us why. Let's get involved. Let's have a conversation. Don't forget to join your union. Get part... And get a part of your community, whether it's your workplace, in your community itself, wherever you may be. Don't forget to go to australianunions.org.au slash wow. That's our customised We have our own union recruitment link and we're very proud of it. We're very proud of that. So thank you once again for listening. Don't forget to subscribe. Love you, Vanny. I love you too. And I love all of you. I love Wagga. We love Wagga.